0: Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Season 4 of LRN's Principled Podcast, my name is Ben Pietro. I'm involved in thought leadership here at LRN. With me today is a special guest, Steven H. Weinstein. He's Renaissance Ray's Executive Vice President and Chief Legal Officer, with responsibility for legal, regulatory, government affairs and compliance matters across the globe for the reinsurance company. Steve joined the Renaissance Ray team as General Counsel and Secretary in 2002, coming over from law firm, Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher. He also serves as chief compliance officer and corporate secretary and as chair of the company's charitable affiliate, the Renaissance Ray Risk Sciences Foundation. He's been a member of the company's executive committee since 2006 and serves in other company-wide leadership and management committees. Welcome today, Steve. Appreciate your time.
2: Ben, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Tell our listeners a little bit about the career path you took to become chief legal officer at Renaissance Ray. What sparked your interest in compliance, risk, governance, and ethics?
2: My career path, in some respects, has been quite simple. I've really only had two jobs since law school. I graduated law school in 1994 and went to Wilkie and Gallagher, and the second assignment I did there as a newly-fledged young associate was the second venture round for Renaissance Reed. And it's obviously, in hindsight, been an enormously important moment in my life, a real hinge for my own family's experience. But I also remember being impressed by the business plan and thinking, gosh, that's really smart, really interesting. And when I met the team in that process, when I was representing the private equity syndicate. I thought those are smart people and good people, and came to the realization that we should try to hang around the account. And indeed, I did hang around the account, helping Renaissance Re go public in 1995, shifting over to the New York Stock Exchange in '96, and continuing to grow. Renry, in that early part of my career, offered me a few times to come down and join them as the first general counsel, and I rationally or irrationally turned them down. I was still a junior professional, and Renry was still a boutique. But finally, they did persuade me, thank goodness, to accept the position and join them, as you've noted, in January 2002. And I've been there ever since with, roughly speaking, the same job titles. But over that time, Renaissance Re has changed enormously. I'm something like the 37th employee. We used to be able to tell from our phones. And the company I joined had about a half a billion dollars in revenues and about a $100 million in profit in the prior year. Last year, we recorded five billion in revenues and about a billion in profit, and have grown to six hundred employees operating globally. So we've we've gone ten x in revenues and and baseline profit, and twenty x in headcount. With that growth and that diversification, the job has changed a lot, and it's been a, a real pleasure for me to be a part of the narrative across this time.
1: For those in the audience who don't necessarily know the differences, what is the difference between a reinsurer and an insurance company? And what is the biggest risk faced by reinsurers, and how big of a risk is climate change?
2: There's no real reason for most to know what reinsurance is. At its most simplified form, it's insurance for insurance companies. As insurers protect you, protect businesses, large and small, from risks ranging from fires and floods to pandemic, our mission in life is to protect aggregators of risk, principally primary insurers, from those same exposures, the aggregations of financial and and some other forms of risk that they take on. So by definition, we're business to business. Uh, We don't need to advertise. We don't need consumers necessarily to uh, be overly aware of our existence. And as a result, they are not. Sometimes we say that the most and perhaps the only thing that we really have in common with our clients are the uh, beginning letters of our our respective job sectors. Unlike our peers in insurance, we have sort of de minimis operations and then very substantial capital. So as I mentioned, we have about 600 employees worldwide but are managing more than $20 billion in assets deploying that to protect our clients as they aggregate risks. So most of the risks that we face are financial in nature or as a result of what is frequently rapidly changing standards and laws regulation and regulatory guidance. I speak and study some of our peers who face significant and I think quite challenging risk in terms of logistics and operations, whether on a national or a cross-border scale our risks have more to do with the capital exposure. Indeed, the solution that we're providing to our clients is protection from severe capital risks. I'm also glad you asked about climate. Climate is an important risk for any financial services firm that aggregates exposure. And these days, I think, for just about nearly any company operating at scale. I'm proud that for a meaningful period of time, Renaissance Re has disclosed as we ought, the risk of climate change to our business and operations and our SEC filings. Early on, I think we were an early recognizer of that as an exposure and one that should be communicated to stakeholders in our business. Of course, now that's commonplace, as it should be. We also disclosed that we might have it wrong. Even our somewhat bearish view of climate risk in terms of the exposures that we try to protect our customers from might not be bearish enough. And we try to disclose that risk, the risk of the, the unknown, as a, as a potentially meaningful risk for our investors. As an aside, we also point to climate as a significant opportunity. The flip side of an exposure like that is frequently in our space an opportunity to craft solutions that will benefit our direct clients as well as the communities they serve. And then I think, Ben, in light of the topic of today and some of your interests, all firms should recognize the importance of climate as a means of engagement with stakeholders, including their staff. It's no accident that E is part of ESG.
1: Obviously, you guys need a lot of information and data to sort of figure out what the next thing is going to be, and you can only rely on historical models only help you so far. What are some of the challenges associated with gathering that information that you need to make these assessments as accurate as they can of these risks you're trying to ensure?
2: For some exposures that we cover, the historical record, the deterministic data is an extremely valuable and reasonably predictive tool for next year's underwriting. And in some cases, it's not. For example, the risk of floods. We have stated in our filings and elsewhere that sea level rise, which is not a model, that's an observed measurement, is increasing every year, and that's increasing the hazard of coastal and riverine flooding. The risk that we potentially expect from flooding over a one-year, two-year, three-year policy period going forward is not representative of the last 100 years' worth of data. We're also very keen to help our clients with new perils newly developed exposures, which are important to them right now. And in those cases, the types of claims records that in other areas that can be quite valuable don't exist. There we try to work to assemble what data that we can from public and private sources to use synthetic data when that's available and potentially relevant. And it's something I personally think will be increasingly important going forward to partner with governments to share in ways that are appropriate and that respect personal privacy, otherwise useful and actionable frequently aggregate data that will help insurers and reinsurers like we see in our space or other players in the market to deliver solutions. If we can provide something to you that's better, stronger, cheaper, using data that's been shared at that level, it's a win-win for folks across the board. But Ben, we also grapple, and we try to grapple with it in as forthright and effective way as we can with our need and desire to be compliant in an evolving set of standards that apply to our business against challenges that we, encounter as a player in the B2B sector with getting our hands on the data. My last few remarks have noted we are investing because it matters to our strategy, the data that will help us underwrite risks, price and model risks for our partners in a more efficient and effective way. But we're also potentially required to be accountable for facts, information, behaviors that we don't have any direct access to. This can come up in our space in things like sanctions. We're in contact with a primary insurer the primary insurer is in contact with a wholesale broker or a retail agent and so on down the line. But ultimately, all of us might bear under certain regimes forms of accountability for sanctioned activities at the ultimate insured level. And you know, similar dynamics relate to money laundering or, or even more jazzy topics like cannabis in certain jurisdictions. What we can do there is do the best that we can. We try to be mindful of the data that we do collect, be mindful of the data that we accidentally come upon, and begin with the premise that our goal in life is to be compliant, to be a good corporate citizen, to be a good citizen in the communities that we operate, and address things promptly when we do become aware of them, and hope that our tome and appropriate investment and a responsible set of philosophies and procedures would serve us well if we ever comes to it.
1: Your title is Chief Legal Officer, but you're also in charge of compliance. As you know, there's been a huge debate the last first half of this decade, or especially in the 2010s, about whether legal should be in charge of compliance and how they should be structured within the organization. As having both hats, how do you navigate those conflicts that may arise between EC and legal when they do? I
2: don't believe that there's a one-size-fits-all answer that applies across all companies in all markets of all scales for all time. I think it's important for, for boards, for CEOs, for people who will fill those positions to be thoughtful about the characteristics that I just summarized in their own company and what's going to be the most effective set of positions, authorities, and resources to achieve the goals of that particular company in a way that's compliant and effective. One thing I would like to share is a, is a way that I have thought about and encouraged our board to think about it, which is a reference to the federal sentencing guidelines principles, which I continue to find resonate with me that when we think about the attributes of a chief compliance officer, rather than a specific rule or a specific requirement to think about in terms of qualitative attributes, the person should be senior, empowered, have access to the board, have access and a peer level of seniority with senior management, the ability to deploy resources on behalf of the compliance and ethics function, and a degree of personal gravitas and the ability to educate. If you can follow those core principles, and there are some more, I think the specifics of how you structure the rule can fall by the wayside, but there's no perfect solution, but you're not gonna get far in the end with something that appears to fit more in a more prescribed way, but doesn't reflect and respect those core principles. There's nothing to, in my own personal experience, it says an attorney, a chief legal officer is actually not gonna be fully motivated and fully accountable for identifying potential risks and preventative acts even in the course of an identified situation that might give rise to dispute risk. So it's not irreparable in my judgment, but it is something that certainly anyone who's going to be involved with regulators who come from that background or other stakeholders should be aware of and be thoughtful about in their own circumstances.
1: Let's move on to COVID-19. As a company with global operations, what are some lessons your organization has learned so far during this pandemic? And what else does it need to still get a better handle on as it moves forward?
2: The first thing we'll have to get our handle on is that we don't have a handle on where the global pandemic might go. No one has a perfect crystal ball or a perfect predictive model. And it's obviously dependent upon current and future actions that governments and individuals and everything in between are going to take in coming periods. In my view, it's important to begin with the premise that we don't know what it looks like, we don't know what's coming, we don't know how long it's going to go, and we just don't know the details about what it's going to take. So against that, what can businesses, business leaders and chief legal officers, chief compliance officers do. And I've uh, posted some, some things recently as well. I do think this particular scenario, which involves health risks and fear and an extended period of stress, calls upon a new or an extended model of senior leadership, a greater emphasis on empathy and awareness of these uncertainties. So many of us, and I am one of these people, have an instinct to act quickly to provide a solution to be decisive. And maybe those instincts don't serve us well here as much as active listening, awareness that there is no one right answer because all our choices are fraught with uncertainties and some degree of risks and that we should be prepared to course correct. I think recognizing as well that none of us are at our best. (laughs) We're all trying our best, but none of us can be at our best. We're all bringing to our our daily routines, even to this podcast, the baggage of the stresses and the complexities that are relate to our immediate family, our extended family, our teams. We have to approach all these challenges with an unusual degree of empathy for each other, an unusual degree of patience, and a recognition that ultimately break ties towards the health of your colleagues, the health of your family, the health of your communities, and staying aligned to the broader mission that brought you to the seat. We'll get back to it, and we'll keep at it, and we'll navigate through this period of unusual uncertainty together.
1: What are some of the steps Renaissance Re is taking as it works to prepare its offices for employees? when they do return, whenever that time may come.
2: One step that we've taken, Ben, and that would be true, I'm sure, of any company operating globally as we've had, is to begin to gather the data on what are the varying rules and requirements and cultural postures of the various global platforms in which we operate and in which another company might operate. The rules are not identical. The cultures are not identical. The risk tolerances are at different varies and even specifics of a location vary. Are you in a wholly owned one story structure or occupying a few stories of a 50 story office building in a major metropolis? Are you in a place like Bermuda? I'm in Bermuda at the moment where most of your employees get to the office or all of them with their own transport or in a place like London or New York or Tokyo where you would expect most of your employees to move across mass transit. If so, what are the rules of mass transit? So to begin to make sure you understand your own operations, the different physical parameters, the different government requirements, and be prepared for all of them to change (laughs) while actively listening, empathetically listening, and keeping your eye on the the things about your culture that make you special and different and to try to preserve them across this period.
1: What are some of the ethical considerations as offices reopen and companies start to test employees, take their temperatures or monitor maybe where they've been or who they've been in contact with, how much of that is, it needs to be certainly done in a way that's respectful of people's privacy, but still in a way that allows you to manage safely and keep people safe because that's one of your main responsibilities to your employees.
2: You have to be aware of, understand and be prepared to be thoughtful around privacy concerns, both in respect of your your own culture your own standards and the rules that relate to the particular jurisdictions and where you may operate or that extend their jurisdictional ambit to you. You also have to be mindful of the health of your most important asset. It's certainly true in our space, by far our most important asset is our high quality team, our teammates and friends. Uh, In a space like ours that's a knowledge-based business and a relatively small company as well, you can do a lot with communication and waivers. We, We employ smart, high integrity, high ethical people who have been recruited to a team-based environment, and we all should be mindful and respectful of the health, including the mental and emotional comfort of our teammates. Personally, I'm prepared to break all ties in favor of health at a time of crisis like this, but you've got to do it in a way that's also mindful of the other entirely legitimate considerations that your teammates and stakeholders might have, like privacy.
1: Yeah, there's so much there. You guys got a lot to unravel. Let's get you out of here on this note, then, as we. take a nod to what's happening in the world and this renewed push for uh, racial justice for everybody. What are two areas Renree is working on to improve its diversity and inclusion efforts?
2: Ben, thank you for asking that. It's always an important question. And of course, it's it's an entirely appropriate, important question at this time. The first thing I think that we're recognizing is that while we're, we've been doing reasonably well, we can do better and we must do better. We've Done particularly well, I think, at Renaissance Re with enhanced gender diversification, beginning with our board of directors. We have work to do, but with four directors out of 10 independents who are women, we've made great progress. We also have to recognize that none of us have come far enough, I think. We have not, we have more to go, and we're gonna get there. It will take time, it will take conversations and empathetic listening, and it's gonna take a series of actions. But we will be a stronger company, we'll deliver superior results with an employee base and a constituent director base that's even more representative of the markets that we serve than we are currently. And we will attract new perspectives and talent and insights than we can with a base that's less diverse. And there is an enormous business advantage in that. This is such a tough time for people. I think those of us who are in different demographic groups can only begin to appreciate what these visuals and these recordings might mean to some of our teammates. The best we can do, again, is is to listen and to seek to be helpful and in our own small way, in our own small stage, to try to keep to, to do the right thing going forward wherever we can.
1: I want to thank you for your time today. So much interesting comments there to work through and I hope our listeners enjoyed them. Thank you, Steve, and uh, stay safe as we move forward through these crazy times.
2: Ben, thank you for having me and uh, best wishes to all the listeners. And uh, if you're interested in this topic, you have my appreciation. Best to all of you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.